we finally Doing achieved it. our goal for the year. Welcome to the Sprocket Podcast, where we are simplifying the good life. I'm Armando Luna. And I'm Guthrie Straw, broadcasting from home in the People's Republic of Portland, nestled in the heart of Cascadia. This is the show where we bring you somewhat irreverent conversations about the intricacies of thinking locally with a global perspective and enjoying the best that life has to offer along the way. Covering bicycling, trains and transit, adventures and life packs, and today, the West Side cargo bike rider extraordinaire, Sean Martinez. Sean, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Welcome. Good to be here. Thanks for Thanks for joining us tonight. Um, Sean, for our listeners, give us, give us like the 10,000 foot view. Um, what, what are your, what are you about? I know we, we led with the cargo bike stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, give us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I'm a stay at home dad. Uh, we've got a five year old daughter and we, uh, started preschool uh, last year and it was, um, about a 20 mile round trip and I have a homemade uh, cargo bike, that, a bucket that we started riding in. And as she got heavier, I decided that we needed to get an e-cargo bike and uh, that's what we have now. But um, we're just uh, biking the pandemic, they say. Yeah, indeed. And so um, the, the bucket bike, to the e-bike, uh, that was a change. Did that all happen during the scope of the pandemic, uh, or was it bucket bike and then pandemic hit? And it's like, gosh, let's let's get an e-bike for this stuff. Well, we you know we were thinking about it, and it was actually right before the stay-at-home order came down, and uh, I was already in contact with with Splendid, and we were talking about different options. And then when the stay-at-home order was going to come down that next week, we decided to just go ahead and make the purchase, get it on the books, because we weren't sure what was going to happen after stay-at-home if we could even get the bike for the rest of the summer. Um, so we just we wanted to get it on the books, and hopefully we could still get it delivered with the stay-at-home order. Yeah, definitely. I know a lot of bike shops, I think cargo bikes including, have had – uh, to say difficulties with keeping stock would probably be an understatement at this point. <laughs> I know I just read a report from the industry that bikes for 2021 are also going to be pretty darn scant. Uh, 2022, <laughs> cross fingers, <laughs> sounds like it might be a little bit back more in the uh, conventional supply chain. Um, it sounds, yeah, good that you're able to, to snag that. Um, were there, you know, other stories you've heard of parents around Portland or that sort of thing, like folks scrambling for cargo bikes, but not being able to meet those needs? No, not so much cargo bikes, but a little after that, it was that our daughter needed to upgrade from a 14 inch, uh, to a 16 inch bike. And that those are, were hard to find. I don't know now, but we, um, all of our, go-to bike shops were out of stock of any 16-inch uh, bike that we were interested in. And uh, we actually had to get on a list and uh, put a deposit on a bike that might not even show up in the factory. And it was really interesting. And we ended up getting it, um, I don't know, a month later, we, we got the bike. So I'm glad I had thought ahead enough to put that deposit down. 
Yeah, definitely. I remember um, just a little bit ago going into Clever on a whim and uh, trying to get just like the most generic of generic floor pumps. And I wasn't waitlisted, fortunately, but they like checked inside and they walked out with a pump and they were like, we literally got this in like five minutes ago. And it was like, <laughs> <laughs> so I think uh, oh, yeah. you know, a month, all things considered, I'm, I'm glad that that wasn't, you know, three months or six months or 2022. Um, with the, with the cargo bike, how do you navigate that? Is it that your daughter will ride a little bit and then cargo bike a little bit, or what's that setup look like? No, it's, it's changed a lot. Um, I used to exclusively have her in the cargo bike until we got to a trail system. Like the Fano Creek trail is one that we use a lot. Um, lately, like today we rode from our place to the Tiger library and she rode the whole way. And that's, and you know, cause we don't have any bicycle, any walk roll infrastructure at all in our neighborhood. So we're in the lane constantly. There's, there's, is nothing here for walk roll infrastructure, no sidewalks. Um, so we're, I was very hesitant in the beginning to let her ride in the lane, but uh, we've slowly got used to that and found the, the slower streets. We found a lot of shortcuts, a lot of neighborhood, um, what do you call them? The secret route that kind of, it's just a, a really small path that a car can't get through. Uh, we've found a lot of those and, and, and always finding new ways to get where we want to go that have less car. Yeah, definitely. And if anybody um, has taken a look at Sean's Twitter feed, you'll see what he means by not a lot of bike lanes. Uh, <laughs> lots of footage of close passes by vehicles on busy, what would appear to be at least medium-sized arterials. Um, but yeah, it looks, looks kind of like where I bike around these days for the most part, being down in Milwaukee <laughs> and such. Uh, it's uh, like, you know, totally different world if 30s in Portland or something like that. Oh, yeah. It, it, uh, when, when we go on our longer rides, like if we go to Gateway Green or something, I'm just blown away by the infrastructure, you know, um, uh, on, uh, on the way there. It's, 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 it's a completely different world to see green paint. Like, what is green paint? That's amazing. You know, uh, a bridge that is only for uh, transit and cyclists and, and people walking. That's amazing. Like we don't have any of that in, in this area. Um, so we live right on the border of Tiger and Portland. We're I mean, really on the County line and there's zero infrastructure. Out there. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, given, um, I would assume, yeah, like with, with cycling in general, like when you have the infrastructure, um, it, you know, if it's a choice in the first place, it's nice to have. Uh, but I think that when you're dealing with stuff like what it looks like you ride pretty much day to day, um, like what what drives you? You know, I, I, there's a lot of people driving, uh, but it seems like you've chosen to cycle in that area. What has influenced some of those decisions for you? What drives you to not drive? Right. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you what, I am definitely in the last year a convert. So I had, for years, a one of the giant diesel Ford trucks and drove it all over. And it really, uh, years ago, fit my lifestyle. I was the foreman of a fabrication shop. I was hauling material. Um, I used to live in Nevada, where 80% of the land is public land. You can just go out four-wheeling, camping, and doing all that stuff. And 
since I've been here, you know, that's completely different and uh, realized that I did not need this giant truck uh, where I live now. And then I really started feeling guilty about the emissions and the uh, wear and tear on the roads. And I just really wanted to get rid of it. <laughs> and uh, I realized that once we got the cargo bike, the e-cargo bike, I could use this bike for transportation, not just for exercise. And that was the switch right there. And um, now we don't have the truck anymore. It's awesome. And I, we're not car free, but we, um, I, I probably drive 90% less now that we got the cargo bike. Mm-hmm. Sean, before, so before you got the cargo bike, were you using a bike for commuting in the other way? Yeah, I mean, I would use I would use our, our analog or our home built cargo bike to get around. I mean, at the time, uh, our daughter was doing preschool at the Twelfth Hills Nature Center, which is about a ten mile ride into Beaverton, and so a twenty mile round trip. We would do that on the on the homemade cargo, and it wasn't super bad. Even in all weather, I even uh, we even got snow at one point. It wasn't bad, but like I said, as she got older and heavier and her things got heavier and we started gaining more gear, rain gear, we're bringing more stuff with us or, you know, lunch, man, these hills are hard and it's just the last mile getting home. So, I mean, when you're at, you're on mile 19 of a ride and now you have to start the climb, it's really tough. And that's when I started considering uh, the e-bike option and it's made a huge difference. When you say homemade, did you make it or did someone here in the Portland area make it or? No, I made it. I was, you know, yeah, looking at all these YouTube videos and and I guess blogs and stuff. And I said, you know, because I'm a fabricator by trade. I was uh, running a steel shop for a while and I have a welder here, a couple of welders and I decided to try it myself. So I looked on, I think I got one uh, mountain bike off of Craigslist and I got another free kid bike and I chopped them up and, and built the, uh, the bucket in between them and then developed the steering linkage as, as best they could uh, from what I could see how other people did it. And it worked out great. I mean, I, I rode it for four years and I nice. even did the yeah, disaster relief trials in 16, I think was the last one, a huge turning point for me, I think was participating in that and realizing what a cargo bike could do. And cargo bike riders. In terms of your cargo bike uh, in the non-electrified sense, making the transition to an e-cargo bike. You mentioned that with the e-cargo bike, you drive, uh, you know, 90% left. Anecdotally, uh, what percentage would you give your driving when you had just the one without the e Hmm, that's a good question. Well, we de- I definitely never, hmm, I know, would never consider probably doing a full grocery run by bicycle until I had the e-bike. Even though it's only maybe a four four mile ride, um, the grocery store and back, uh, the hills are, uh, the limiting factor. Mm-hmm. What are like the three, you know, in the, in the day to day, what are the three biggest like differences or, you know, pick your favorite difference between moving between E and, or non e-bike and e-bike for that? I'd say range is the biggest thing. So I'm, not limited, um, not as limited uh, as to where we can go and what we can do. Uh, you know, I 
especially because it's not just me that I'm moving. I'm moving a now five-year-old, you know, and her bike and all of our rain gear that we might need and lunch. And we have all these things that we need to take with us. And that adds up fast, you know, the bike's getting heavy. And um, so to be able to go to like the lumber yard, I could ride to the lumber yard um, and they actually let me plug in there in their lobby, which is awesome. So I can, I can recharge the e-bike and then ride home. I could never have done that on the, on the uh, uh, homemade bucket. I don't think, I, I don't know if my legs can make it to the lumber yard and back <laughs> in one trip, but um, uh, it, it's definitely gets us further away from home with less anxiety, I guess, about getting back. Yeah, definitely. Um, I have only ridden a uh, e-cargo bike in like very limited contexts. Uh, but you know, to your, your points, the thing that felt like just really different was being able to go sort of speed of traffic for most roads mm-hmm. in Portland. Um, the 12 miles an hour versus even like the 18 or the 23 or 24, like that just felt like a huge game changer, uh, in terms of traffic flow and visibility with other people driving as opposed to yeah, I, you know, I had um, a bad experience. I got my first right hook a couple months ago, and I was uh, coming down 99 Pacific Highway into Tigard towards um, 72nd, which is Fred Meyer, and uh, I was in the bike lane, and I was probably doing 2025, 20, and a van a right hook into the, into the parking lot, and I grabbed, you know, both handfuls of brake, and my... Uh, I think my tires actually locked up and my front wheel was bouncing because it could, didn't have enough traction. And I managed to turn into the driveway with the vehicle somewhat, but then impacted um, with my handlebars. And uh, that, with that impact on the handlebars, turned my bike to the left and back into the vehicle, and, uh, but then stopped right there. But it wasn't... Oh, goodness. Yeah, uh, you know, I got my knees. I think my knees hit the bucket, Um from the stop. And then that was about it. It, it wasn't, I was more shook up just from, from being hit with a van than, uh, you know, than anything. But, uh, you know, what made a huge difference is the, the, the driver was so nice and, um, we exchanged information and she, you know, she was very, um, I don't want to say, uh, she asked me what she could do better next time, which I thought was interesting. And I explained to her the concept of the right hook and that cyclists are often hurt by the right hook. And um, anyway, she's just very pleasant. And uh, it, it, it wasn't bad. I took the bike in. It was okay. Um, there was a small dent on the door of the van. It wasn't a huge deal, but it could have been worse. Yeah, I'm really glad you're okay. That sounds kind of yeah. horrifying. <laughs> So, Sean, I, I remember seeing that. You had posted that on Twitter, I believe, the video of that. What, how do you set up your video when you're riding? Like, what do you use? And how do you, like, do you have the extra batteries? Does it last all day? What, how does that work? So, I, you know, for a long time, I um, was running. I actually have my setup here. So, I just got this new helmet. This is the 1,000 that I just picked up. And then I have the session mounted to the front. This is an older GoPro. But, um for a long time, I was just running it on nonstop. And this does not have a big battery. I was, I was running out of battery constantly, um, even though I would have enough memory. 
then I had to start really limiting when I would have it on, when I'd have it off. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at now. I just, I kind of know the thoughts that I could potentially have a problem with, <laughs> with drivers and I'll turn it on then, you know, and then I know spots that I'm most likely won't have any, any problems and I'll just leave it, I'll leave it off. But, um, I have been looking at the newer GoPro has the, um, you want to call a uh, loop recording. So it's kind of like a dash cam. So you can just leave it running constantly. And then if something happens, you can push the button and it'll save that uh, strip of video for you. So I'm, I'm thinking about that. Um, but this session has been working great for me. Just mounted to the helmet. I like, I like it mounted to the helmet because it, it sees where I'm looking. And often I see a lot of handlebar mount videos where you can't really tell what's going on because it's looking forward the whole time and something's happening off screen. I like it being on the, on the helmet. I know a lot of people don't, but um, maybe it's the extra weight. But I, I'm pretty comfortable with having the camera mounted to the helmet. Do you think the overall weight of the helmet sort of dampens out the weight of the cam? I noticed that's a, a pretty burly hard shell you've got there. Yeah. This is, you know, so I've just got this, um, and it's so comfortable. Um, I had for years that, and I can't remember the model, the bell that, it's like a full face, but then it comes, the full face comes off and then it's a regular bike helmet. Um, for years I had that one and it, I thought it was very uncomfortable. I didn't like that helmet at all. And so I, I finally this year got a new helmet and this thing's pretty comfy so far. I haven't had any problems with it. Um, I like that it's got a visor. Uh, I really do, uh, miss the longer visor of my other helmet to block the sun. Um, but, but this one works okay. Uh, you know, I catch a lot of bad behavior on my camera. It's, it, I, you know, unfortunately, I try not to, there's a line at which, like, you want to stop posting this stuff online so you don't discourage other riders from getting on their bikes, you know, because it's, mm. I don't want to scare people into not riding, you know, but, but you also want to let, like, Ebot, ODOT, uh, you know, the Washington County, everybody, all these people know that was going on on the road, you know, and we need to fix it. How do you sort of meter? Like I, I used to post a lot of things like a little bit similar on Twitter, but I had trouble controlling my level of just general dismay at the situation. Like how do you keep check uh, between like these harrowing <laughs> experiences and public service announcements? Uh, it's, yeah. It seems like a difficult. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've, um, I've learned over the last couple of years that the design of the road, the design of the infrastructure is the cause of a lot of problems. Um, even though I see a lot of distracted driving, I see a lot of speeding. Um, the, you know, like a good example, this arterial, arterial we have here, there are places southwest Taylor's Ferry. This is a long, straight, downhill street, and people go so fast when they're driving in their cars. I mean, it's a 30 zone when you cross the county line, and people are still doing 50 in their cars. And if we can design the road better to limit the speed of the cars, it would be less of a factor, you know? I don't know if enforcement's going to do anything and there's not much enforcement now anyway, but 
is we can limit the speed of the vehicle with infrastructure. That might be a better option. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for that insight. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm impressed. Like, I'm impressed that you... Uh, you're, it seems like you're still very generous to drivers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I I kind of gave up yelling at people. I don't think that's going to get anywhere, and I think that's just going to uh, maybe create another problem. I don't know. But, uh, sometimes I just can't help it. <laughs> like, but I mean, when you when I'm riding down. Um, a line of cars that are sitting at a red light. There's 10, 20 cars in this red light. And I look over and I mean, no exaggeration, half of them are on their phones. And it's just like, what, what, how can we stop that behavior? I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. It's, and it's not just sitting at the red light that they're on their phones. When the vehicle's moving, they're on their phones too. You know, it's so scary. Um, distracted driving is just, uh, it, it really freaks me out be in the lane to be sharing the road with a distracted driver that's scary mm. yet the reward is also quite nice as well sometimes like there's that that paradoxical effect of cycling uh like gosh it can be so scary sometimes but it can also be super fun sometimes yeah exactly i mean i am in I am in such better spirits when I've gone on a long ride, you know, and if I'm out, um, just like the other day, I, I had to ride down to Splendid and back, and that's a pretty good ride, And but I just feel so good after that, you know, and I know that had I driven, I would be probably really angry and full of road rage at, and uh, would not be feeling as good as I do when I get home on the bike. Yeah, definitely. Um I have been driving a little bit more this summer and it's been really interesting because I, I used to basically drive. Well, I used to not drive at all. Um, and like, it's always been borrowing friends cars or something like that when I have driven. And one thing I've been kind of trying to measure or meter is like how complacency kind of like creeps into your uh, transit habits and with driving in particular, like, even coming from most of a lifetime on a road uh, from a bicycle perspective, you know, it, it took me only like a month before I was like, ah, oh, you know, like you get that first little twinge of uh, maybe entitlement or something like that, where you're just like, Oh shoot, I need to step back and like chill out. Uh, but it's, it is very easy to do when you're in a big cave. Uh, true. You know, I um, have not done much driving. Uh, at all, but we did go last uh, last week. We went to Bridge of the Gods and and rode on the um, the tr- state trail there, and did a, a quick. Uh, I think it was like six mile ride. Um, but the drive there was like I was so stressed out. I was like mm-hmm. not appreciating being tailgated by giant trucks, and uh, I was like really getting road rage. I could feel it. And I was just like, I don't want this. I don't, I don't want this feeling, you know, but I really want to go on this bike ride, but I don't want to be in the car right now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, switching back into cargo bike land for just a moment. Uh, 
one thing that I think on the show that comes up as a theme is there's like folks that are, I guess, like self-assigned camps of like, oh, I'll never ride an e-bike or I'll uh, only, only ride an e-bike. Like I've found with e-bikes, once you get somebody on them once, then, then they become e-bike fans. Um, and I'm curious, like, what did you look for in an e-bike? Like how, how did you go about that like consideration and what were some of the important factors for you? And I know we've talked about, I got, I guess a lot of the physical factors, um, but from a longevity standpoint, given your history and the work that you do, um, were there certain like hallmarks of a bike manufacturer or a electric component manufacturer that you felt like you wanted to get some box? some boxes checked for before dropping in for that tips? You know, I, I did look at some different brands, but um, I was drawn to the bullet. It seemed like it was, um, I, don't know, I, I really liked the, the, I guess the geometry of the frame. Um, it seemed like it was very dirty, almost an industrial platform because you see so many, delivery companies using them overseas with giant boxes mounted to them. And um, I really wanted something tough that could actually haul stuff. I guess that was important. You know, like it could haul a lot of weight. Um, A limiting factor, I guess, I mean, well, definitely was cost. I mean, there was, uh, you know, that you get different, your different um, batteries. The batteries are huge cost you know, or a huge part of the cost, but, uh, capacity on the battery, you know, amperage of your motor, you know, I mean, you have all these different factors. I, I went for the smaller box, um, just the composite panels instead of the giant double wide wooden box. Uh, and since we only have one child, I figured that that would be okay to have the single box. I, I kind of miss the cargo capacity of, I have a kind of a double wide box on my home belt and I could haul a lot more things in the box on my home belt. I just have more capacity. But what I did is I added the panniers and the rear rack to the bullet and that made a big difference because I can put all our ring gear in the panniers. I can, uh, and then also open them up to haul groceries and just stuff grocery bags in the open panniers. Um, but uh, I guess, yeah, uh, I know that there are a lot of different manufacturers out there, but I just was really drawn to, I think, the design of the bullet. Nice. Thank you. Um, if you had advice for anybody who is maybe in a similar situation or looking to make that transition, um, do you have any knowns that you're aware of now that you weren't when you sort of got into the e-bike world and or, or advice that you would have given yourself, um, you know, looking back towards the time of that purchase? I would, let's see, I would look into your estimated range, I guess. Um, and I'm still looking at maybe later either getting another battery, a second battery, um, and just having it to be swappable or to mount two batteries to the bullet. Um, but I would look at your, you know, your estimated range where you think you're going to be using it a lot. But one thing you have to realize is that, okay, when I turn on the e-bullet, display comes on, it says the range on eco is 90 miles, right? And you're like, yes, 90 miles. But that is completely flat, no hills, no load. Um, and I actually think that that range is 
for a mountain bike because they use the same system on mountain bikes. Um, so when you add the weight of the cargo bike, the hills of uh, like Southwest and uh, a five-year-old and all the gear, that range drops significantly. And I'm talking um, maybe 30 or 40 miles for us. So um, uh, think about your range, definitely, and your battery capacity, I think, is a huge deal. I mean, if, you're, if you can afford to get the larger battery, I would definitely get the larger battery. Sean, do you, have you or so I see some people with e-bikes and they talk about another battery, spare battery, or they rig something up where they have dual batteries or things like that. Is that something that someone brand new to buying an e-bike would probably be able to do or figure out? Or is that something that's more specific to somebody that's really bikey and I'm going to make this work? Yeah, that's a, a, a huge factor is finding public power or somewhere to charge either on your trip or in between your trips. If you have, you know, if you're riding to a certain destination every time and you have a place to charge there, that makes a huge difference. But if you can only, uh, if your entire round trip is based on one charge cycle of your battery, now you really need to think about either having the spare battery or the dual battery setup. Um, the dual battery, if you have two batteries, like on, on the e-bullet, the battery just, or it, yeah, it disconnects. It comes off of the bike. You can take the battery off, take it with you if you don't want to leave it outside locked up. Um, it has a key lock on the battery. But um, you can just swap in a charge battery right there on the spot if you have the two. Um, but I have seen dual battery setups where uh, they can wire it all in and it is all on the bike. You don't have to do any swapping. Um, but the easiest thing is probably just getting a second battery and carrying it in your pack or in your pannier or something to have it charged up. Um, if we could just get more public power and the availability to charge on, you know, out on your route, that would make a big difference in the, the amount of usage, I think, of e-bike. Yeah, it was interesting that you posted that on, on Twitter once, and I'm like, oh, if you're headed to, you know, Gateway Green or I mean, anywhere on Northeast, like, if you're in Hollywood, you're free to, you know, come to my house. And I thought, yeah. oh, that'd be interesting. I was, I was thinking about that, especially being here in the pandemic, since I, I've been at home, you know, we're working from home. Um, being a, uh, maybe we have a, a Google map of resources of like, oh, there's this, that those couple people that are in Hollywood and they have, you know, we can charge our bike or they have like tools or a pump, you know, or things that you might not have. And just to have a Google map of that all over Portland or whatever city you're in. Of, of helpers, I guess I would call them, you know, because especially now with bike stores being a lot of them are appointment only, or, you know, they can't just take your bike like they used to. And, you know, Oh, I'm going to tweak it out a little bit and then be on my way. Um, I don't know. I was thinking about that. Maybe see how helpful that would be. Yeah. I like that idea. If you've ever heard of the website, warm showers.org yes. for touring cyclists. Yeah. Yes. I was thinking about something similar to that um, where people could have like an extension cord, uh, out, outside uh, by the by the sidewalk or whatever, and if someone wanted to charge their e bike, you could just stop and take a break and plug in for a minute. You know, warm outlets. Mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we could even uh, subvert the you know the Tesla open standard and just start carrying <laughs> those kind of plugs. <laughs> it's like what? You know, uh, I've seen I've seen one post somewhere. I don't know if it was a video I saw where someone shows you how you can hack uh, an EV 
charge plug and convert it to 110 so you could charge your bike, your e-bike. And I would, I wouldn't mind trying that actually. I need to find um, like a socket off a Prius at the junkyard and try messing around with it and see if I can get it to plug into those free chargers at the grocery store and charge the bike. Oh, wow. I smell a Kickstarter project coming into operation. Right? <laughs> you know, I mean, the, uh, like at the Tiger Public Library, there are two free EV chargers there. Um, anybody could come plug in. They're completely free. They have giant screens on them, and they make their revenue by playing ads on the screens. And, huh. um, but if you had an adapter to convert their plug to a 110 or something, you know, to, to charge your e-bike, that'd be awesome. So Sean, if you if you stop there, like say for example that 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 did work for you, how long would you be there charging your bike to get keep going or get on your way again? So I, you know, I've put a lot of time into finding public power outlets. I carry a one ten uh, VAC volt AC um, electric tester in my bike, and if I find an outlet while we're out riding around, I'll plug my tester in to see if it has power or not, and. Most often they don't if they're out in public, unfortunately, but I, I found a lot in Washington County that do. So like if we go to Cook Park in Tigard, every park shelter in Cook Park has public power outlets. There are probably eight of them. And I see people there all the time charging their devices or whatever they're doing. And, and uh, so if we're there, I'll park the bike under the shelter. I'll plug in the bike in and then we'll go hit the playground for 15, 20 minutes, you know, and then, um, get 10, 15 miles of a range just in a few minutes. You know, it just depends on how long you want to sit there. Oh, cool. One place that I found in particular that was pretty awesome was the, the uh, Beaverton Library. They have covered bike racks with a, a power outlet there. And I was just blown away. I was just like, wow, covered bike parking. That's amazing. That's, that's living the good life right there. Yeah. So I'm curious, what is uh, maybe the strangest or most uh, surprising place you've found to charge your bike? Ooh. Hmm. I'd say, well, strangest, huh? Now you got my brain going. <laughs> I can think of so many places that don't have public power that, that should, but I'm just trying to think of... Uh, place that I found it. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll give you a story. I was at, I will say, an unnamed um, Portland Public Park, and I was looking at the locked outlet box, and it has, there's an outlet box on the shelter, um, and it's got a padlock on it, and I'm looking at it, and I'm just like, first wondering, you know, why, why these are locked anyway, but um, I, I see an arrow that's on the box. So I, I just grab the cover of the box and I just move it towards the arrow and it separates the hinge. And that, so now the box hinges open on the lock because the hinges come <laughs> apart. Like it's just disconnected. It hasn't broken. It's just disconnected. And I'm just like, what? So I plugged in and I charged my bike and then I just closed it back up. And I was just like, is this a, a weakness in every locked power box? Now I'm wondering, you know, so I'm gonna have to check that out. I don't, I don't know if we would consider that a locked boxes. Yeah, I don't know if we would consider that a life hack, but I, I know every <laughs> every locked outlet, I'm gonna be checking now. <laughs> life hack. Yeah, I, 
it was completely unintentional. I'm just looking, I was wondering why is there an arrow on here? And when I shoved it to the side, it, it came apart. I mean, it just opened on the hinge side. I was like, wow. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. Where else have I found public power? That's interesting. Um, again, the, you know, Tiger library, they have outlets on the outside of the building that are, are on and they're available and people use them. I see people all the time charging, um, devices and, um, and I, 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 it's an, it's really interesting how different it is between the two counties. You know, there's so much public power in Washington. Hmm. Um, uh, one place that I was disappointed by was uh, if you go to OMSI, there's a giant solar array in their parking lot, and it's an EV charging station. Um, and it boasts the fact that this, you know, these solar panels are going to produce the power to charge EVs, and there are also bike racks there underneath the cover of the solar array. And each of the bike rack posts has an electrical box on it, but the outlets have been taken out. Yep. I've seen that one. (laughs) How disappointing. Yeah, it is. I, yeah, I could, I agree with you on that one. (laughs) (laughs) But I did find that, in the EV charging station itself, uh, where the, the car plug is, if you flip this little door, there's a 110 outlet under there, but it doesn't work. I, or I couldn't get it to work. I don't know what was going on, if they disconnected it. Um, but then also on the building, I, where the bike racks are against the wall at the entrance of OMSI, there are outlets all the way down the wall, all these outside outlets, and they're all turned off, you know, kind of disappointing. There could be... I think a lot more people would be willing to leave the car at home if they were uh, had the promise of being able to plug in at the museum or wherever they're going, you know, if they could plug in and, and get that, uh, get rid of that range anxiety, they call it, not being able to get home on one charge. You know? Right. That's sort of the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the intent behind the EV station stations, the plug-in stations, right? Kind of if, if you build it, they will come. Now we just need to get somebody to start building it for e-bikes. Yeah. Speaking of anxieties, um, are there anxieties associated with the size and sort of uh, presence of a cargo bike as you go around? Do you feel like it? you need to be more careful about how you uh, sort of lock it or store it? Or have you had any issues with that around town? Uh, let's see. I, I can tell you that the the wave rack is even more useless to a, a bucket bike or a cargo bike. You can only use the end post of a wave rack because obviously you can't put your front wheel through the wave of the rack on a with a cargo bike, um, and uh, it, it just doesn't work out. And so uh, any of the wave racks I can't use if um, if it. Uh, the old wheel bender racks that your wheel slides into, uh, you can't use those either. You know, it's, it's uh, kind of difficult sometimes to find a rack that you can use. Um, but I actually carry three locks, and I lock as much as I can. I can lock up the bike and, and hopefully reduce the, um, the anxiety of leaving outside. Mm. I was out on the walk. Uh, the other day and I came across an urban arrow, uh, sort of bullet cousin and the 
folks who had it, it looked like they had created just a like hardened steel cement installation in front of their house, sort of on the near to the curb. Uh, and it was just literally hanging out there in uh, like Southeast Portland in the rain. And I'm curious, wow. like in terms of the setup at home, do you really have to create a space for it and like try to bring it inside? Or if you, if you had the ability to put like some hardened steel equipment outside, would you prefer that convenience over, over your current situation? If so. Yeah, I, Fortunately, I have uh, a nice steel pole to lock up to here at home that's uh, out of view and pretty secure, so it's, it's nice. Um, uh, I see a lot of people online that use, like you say, it's just, you know, locked up outside in front of a house, but they'll put a motorcycle cover over it, so it's not as visible. Hopefully, that'll be a little bit safer, um, and it's weatherproof, so, that, you know, that makes it really nice. Also, with the size of the bike, the width, maybe, um, especially if I've got, uh, our daughter's bike on the back rack too. Um, I have a hard time with chicanes, uh, bollards on bike paths. Um, one that we just encountered today uh, again, unfortunately, were, uh, these chicanes they put in downtown Tigard on, uh, right where the railroad tracks are on main street. And they're, impossible almost impossible to get through on with a cargo bike i mean just because of the length of the bike and um also that they put a lamppost in the middle of one of the sets of chicanes that makes it even tighter and it's just a horrible design yeah that kind of reminds me of um a similar issue that cargo bike users ran into when the max orange line was installed and there were initially gates that you needed to like hold open that swing shut but you needed to get them open and it's like roll up on a cargo bike well what am i gonna do (laughs) yeah yeah it's uh it's a challenge sometimes you know and i think about not only it being a challenge for you know wider cargo bikes but for adults on adult trikes uh people pushing double strollers wheelchair people in wheelchairs you know all of these things it affects all of these people, all of these users. Um, and it's, uh, it's something that's so simple to remedy, you know, like the, the chicanes on the Fano Creek trail. Um, I heard that they're going to take them out, but until then it's just so difficult to navigate through there. Even a, a regular bicycle with a kid trailer, it's difficult to get through the chicane. Um, I, cool. I try to make that vocal on any community, um, surveys that come out about bicycle infrastructure, sidewalk upgrades, anything like that, uh, trails that they're building. I, I, I make it a point to, you know, state, please consider the width for your, you know, wheelchairs, double strollers, adult trikes, uh, cargo bikes, all these things, because it, it makes a huge difference. And especially when they put a, a bollard post on a 90 degree turn to enter the trail system, that post is just like, in the way it's so bad yeah it's sort of like after you heard it's sort of like a swing and a miss because the intent behind that right is to kind of uh limited uh vehicle access or even to try to encourage access of people like that aren't driving um or to increase safety like in the example that guthrie gave with the the self-closing gates, you know, that are, they were kind of pretty impossible 
to hold even just on a regular bike but it just it it's well intended but it just showed sort of this blind spot that people had of like what is a biker what is the real mobility considerations i'm i really appreciate that you brought in like double strollers and and people on wheelchairs because it is one of those things where uh i think even i get into when i talk about like bike infrastructure i've already narrowed down my field of of vision of what that looks like before you know considering all these other uh road users or path users right yeah for sure and um some of the older infrastructure you'll see two ballers or two posts that are restricting access to a trail and you could totally accomplish what you're trying to accomplish but with a single bollard in the center instead of having these two that makes these you know, just awkward widths of openings to access the trail, you know, just small things like that. You know, it makes a big difference to get people out on bikes. I mean, if you can't, if it's uncomfortable to take the trail to the grocery store because of, uh, you know, poor infrastructure, then people aren't going to do it, right? And it's easier to drive your car. Definitely. Well, Sean, thank you for documenting your experiences and for sharing with the world your insight. Uh, I think there's a lot of good stuff you're putting out there in terms of bringing awareness, as Aaron was mentioning, towards not only cycling, uh, but just alternative road uses in general. Um, And from an infrastructure standpoint, we could all use a little hand up out there uh, if you come from maybe a a less driving-focused type of transit. Um, If anybody's looking to catch up on the work that you're doing, uh, where can they find you? Uh, on Twitter, John Martinez uh, at Rescue You, and um, that's the best, the best place right there. And I, I try to post some, some good content. Uh, we're out riding a lot. We get a lot of footage on the camera. Um, we experience a lot of of uh, awesome stuff too. So I try to post as much as I can. Yeah, definitely. You got the, the slow-mo sick edits going on, so definitely a good one. <laughs> uh, Sean, thank you so much for joining this Eve. I want to respect your, your timeline and uh, us all getting to bed here. Is there anything that uh, we didn't ask this evening that we should have or that you want folks to know? Hmm, good question. Um, oh, I would say look at I know that uh, Go by Bike is trying to get a bike library together. Uh, I think they have some models already that you can do test rides on. Oh, wow. Thing, uh, remember that you could go to Splendid, you could go to Clever, um, Go by Bike, you could test ride these bikes and just go down and test ride them. And I think that's a big point. If you just get on one of these things and go for a test ride for, uh, you know, whatever, 15 minutes, it, it's a huge difference. It'll, it'll, your perspective of e-bikes, you know, will, will change dramatically if you just ride one and try it. Definitely. Yeah, I'm a believer in that as well. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you for taking the time this eve. Uh, once again, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. And we look forward to keeping up with your ex- exploits and uh, maybe saying hi again sometime in the f- near future. Right on. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Sean. All right. One yes. place you shouldn't hold back going is... The Beermongers on Southeast Division and 12th. With 
the big stick on the ceiling and covered canopy where there used to be car parking. Speaking of infrastructure changes, uh, the beer mongers has excellent beer, friendly faces, and is around unlike the DRT. So yeah, go check them out. They're pretty rad. What are you having tonight? Uh, I've been drinking coffee, unfortunately. I really got to stop with that stuff. Oh, wow, this whole time? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I got problems. <laughs> it's like 8 o'clock at night. I'm still drinking coffee. But it's it's one of those things where it's hot. Like, the coffee's hot. So I feel like if I don't drink it now while it's hot, I'm wasting the coffee, even though I know I'll drink it tomorrow morning when it's cold anyways. It doesn't matter. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> got to keep that heat concert yeah yeah anna just handed me a waterloo so i guess i'll be drinking that now (laughs) there you go (laughs) very nice how about yourself armando oh i am drinking what am i drinking ex novo aperture hazy pale ale it's pretty good nice awesome can with the hazies um i took a break from going to the beer mongers this week and am drinking homebrew called hello from yesterday or hello from the past that's that's the name of it we I come up with homebrew beer time. it's a pale ale okay what's that i said homebrew beer yeah turns out you can make beer at home nice uh you just have to have a lot of patience and keep things really really <laughs> Really, 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 really sanitized. And uh, then it doesn't taste like mold. <laughs> Gross. Don't ask me how I found that out the first time. <laughs> yeah, it's a pale ale. And uh, it's pretty tasty. So we'll say hi to the beer mongers next week. Hey. We got an event. got to be careful about the dancing i'm gonna end up on tiktok again (laughs) but you did so well the first time (laughs) we've got winter bike lights we're keeping the calendar on hiatus right now but please do take some photos of how you are lighting your bike this winter in line with local laws and regulations, we encourage you to add some more festive lights. If you do, take a photo and share it with us on any of our social media, Facebook's at Sprocket Podcast, or Twitter and the Instagrams at Sprocket Podcast, and use the hashtag Sprocket Winter Bike. Bring a bit of cheer to our days without much daylight. Of course, we encourage you to follow any and all locally applicable regulations when riding your bicycle on public roadways in association with lit apparatus and uh we'll just let you decide whether or not that applies to you have you lit up your bike yet i did i I put mine on we uh john and i did that ride on uh new year's eve right on so i got my lights on i'm gonna be lame and say don't don't bike lights count as lighting up your bike (laughs) (laughs) i had uh I'm going to I'm going to look and see if there's any on clearance now. Um I had a string of lights that I wove through uh 
bungee net. And then it was sitting on my, it's not there now, but it was sitting on my saddlebag for a while. I guess there's nothing stopping me from keeping it on there. Well, I should go check out some free piles outside of houses and get myself some bike lights. Yeah. Bike lights. Well, it's surprising. Like the, the string of lights I just got at the local Fred Meyer, they were not that expensive. Like I remember a time, you know, people's light setups on their bikes were, uh, kind of cost prohibitive. Um, and at least for me, they were cost prohibitive, but like they're available anywhere now. Uh, people are manufacturers, I should say, are setting up, uh, you know, battery powered lights for whatever your needs are. It's also nice because with the bike lights, if it's not a standard light, I think my experience has been that anything you can do to make yourself look weirder on a bike makes people pay more attention and convert associatively are it's like safer uh so they're like oh that person has bike lights they must be cool i'm not gonna run into them because i'm texting i'll just get close i'll just i'll just uh accidentally run into them because i'm watching them (laughs) oh yeah fixation no fixation (laughs) that's uh, that's why you don't do strobes on your uh winter bike uh you've reached the end of yet another episode of the Sprocket Podcast. This has been Guthrie and Armando. <laughs> and uh, Aaron. And this is Guthrie again, except this time I'm going to read the credits all by myself. The Sprocket Podcast is produced at home until we can get all that sweet, sweet COVID vaccine. Our website is thesprocketpodcast.com. Email to thesprocketpodcast at gmail.com. Call or text to 503-847-9774. Twitter and the Instagrams at Sprocket Podcast. Hashtag Sprocket Winter Bike. Thanks to Ryan J. Lane for our theme music. Hurt Bird for our headlines sounder. Marcus Norman for graphic design. And thanks to the generous support of our Patreon supporters and listeners. Shadowfoot, Wayne Norman, Eric Iverson, Cameron Lean, Richard Wazinski, Tim Mooney. Glenn Kubish, Matt Kelly, Eric Weiss, Todd Parker, Chris Smith, Caleb Jenkinson, J.P. Cooley, Peanut Butter Jar Matt, Marco Lowe, Rich Otterstrom, Andrew in Colorado, Drew the Welder, Anna, Andre Johnson, King of Division, Richard G., Oh That's Me, Aaron Green, author of We Were Like Sons, founder of the Refrainery, Campsite, Magnus David, Nathan Poulton, Rory in Michigan, Jeremy Kitchen, David Belay, Tim Coleman, Perry Hugel, DJ Finneran, Brad Hipwell, Thomas Gato, Keith Hutchinson, Ranger Tom, Joyce Wilson, Ryan Tam, Jason Offenberg, Microcosm Publishing, David Moore, Todd Grosbeck, Chris Barron, Chris Barron, Chris Barron, Sean Baird, Simon Pace, Gregory Braithwaite, Ryan Morrow, Dude Luna, Matthew Rooks, <laughs> Marshall, Paula at Punataki Cyclecraft, Philip M., Spartandale, no relation, and Mr. T., who never really left, including Bike Initiative Kiwana, Sarah G., Adam D., Go Dig a Hole, Beth Hammond, Greg Murphy, Myra Martinez, 
Oso, Isaac M, David Christensen, 503, Byron Patterson, Kirsten Graham, Aaron G, Rachel Moline, and welcome back, list and returning donor, Jimmy Diesel. And to all of our former donors who helped us get this far. Now wash your hands and wear your mask and brush your teeth and go to bed.